The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, as in Her Royal Highness edition. It's Wednesday, February 20th, 2019. On today's show, Bohemian Rhapsody is the band biopic of Queen. It's also the last in our Oscar Best Picture roundup. Uh, eager to discuss it. And then Abducted in Plain Sight is a documentary on Netflix. It tells the whacktacular story. I mean, nothing, there's no adjective to do justice to how spectacularly weird this documentary is about the Broberg family and the abduction in the early 1970s or mid-1970s of their young daughter, Jan, seemingly with their knowledge, possibly even their complicity, we will discuss at length, I'm sure. And finally, a nation turns its lonely eyes to a golf cart. After 14 years on Mars, the NASA rover opportunity has gone silent. Joining me today is Kay Austin Collins. You know him as Cam, also, of course, the, the film critic at Vanity Fair. Cam, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here. Uh, this is becoming quite a habit, having you back on. It's fantastic. And, of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. All right, let's dig right in. Bohemian Rhapsody, on the one hand, is a straightforward uh, band biopic uh, of the great genre-busting, hiding-in-plain-sight, genderqueer rock and roll smorgasbord known as Queen, with uh, Freddie Mercury at front and center, maybe the greatest, among the greatest, uh, the most gifted, certainly most flamboyant frontman of all time, he of the multi-octave pipes and the Bugs Bunny chompers. Do I need to list the hits? Not at all. Uh, but on the other hand, this is not a straightforward project at all. To begin with, Mercury's story is... Uh, in real life was totally complex, the coming to terms with his own sexuality, dying from complications from AIDS. And then the story behind the movie itself, it was directed by Brian Singer, who is now, thanks to multiple very credible stories of abuse and far worse, is a total Hollywood persona non grata, probably pariah from this point out. Uh, and then, of course, it's just a huge box office, got a Best Picture uh, uh, Oscar nomination. Everyone saw it. No one thought it was good. And then most oddly of all, we're doing a segment on Queen without Julia Turner being here. Har har. All right. A lot to unpack. Let's listen to a clip. I've been following you for a while, actually. Write songs. Might be of interest to you. It's just a bit of fun, really. You're five minutes too late. Our lead singer just quit. What about me? Uh, not with those teeth, mate. I know what I'm doing. I got a feeling I should be doing all right. Doing all right. <laughs> I was born with four additional incisors. More space in my mouth means more range. I'll consider your offer. Uh, do you play bass? Nope. Hmm. Okay, in case that needed any setup, and I sort of doubt it does, that's the catalytic moment when Freddie Mercury emerges from the anonymous mass and hooks up with an existing band, uh, including Brian May, the tremendous guitarist, and Queen is born. Um, Dana, I'll start with you. I like Queen. Everyone likes Queen. I'm assuming you like Queen. I am shocked to discover this movie grossed $700 million. What? Just to, to pick pick. Pick this up wherever you see fit, but tell me, tell me what you thought of the movie, and and uh, isn't aren't you sort of amazed at its performance? Yeah, I mean, if anything, it's the reception 
both in, in award season and by audiences that made us talk about this. I mean, the history of this show with the Culture Gap Fest is that usually we try to cover all the Best Picture nominees before the awards, which are next weekend. So this is our last show. And we kept putting off doing Bohemian Rhapsody, I think, because we all kept sort of hoping it would drop out of the conversation. <laughs> and uh, specifically, I think week the last week we, we met for our planning call, Julia said, oh, let's just skip Bohemian Rhapsody. Come on. And after that, Rami Malek, who plays Freddie Mercury, won the BAFTA, the British equivalent of the Oscar, which is, you know, a pretty good indicator for how much attention that performance in that movie may get at the Oscars. And it really made clear, like, we can't ignore this movie anymore. However cheesy a biopic it is, we have to just face it head on and talk about it. But I continue to be just utterly puzzled that a movie that's so, it's not that it's, you know, offensively bad, but that a movie that's so flagrantly mediocre has had such recognition and success in the postseason and now seems to be well on its way, if nothing else, for possibly getting a Best Actor award for Rami Malek. I mean, it also brings up the question, how possible is it to be a great actor with a terrible script, right? In a movie that, that provides you with a character that has so little sort of credibility. I mean, and then, of course, there's the way that this movie treats his queerness, which we have to get into. And then there's the Brian Singer backstory where Brian Singer didn't even direct half of this movie, right? They brought in Dexter Fletcher, another director who goes completely uncredited. There's all kinds of things going on behind the scenes that could have contributed to this strangely slipshod feeling of this movie. But I want first to kind of nail what that slipshod feeling is. You can sort of tell from that clip that it's a a cheesy biopic, right? I mean, the compression of the idea that a band would come together from a guy just walking up to two dudes in a van after a gig and they all harmonize perfectly. That kind of compression (laughs) is the sort of walk hard, you know, classic bad biopic cheesiness you'd find in any biopic. But there's something beyond in this this movie that almost feels as if it were made by film students or something? I I want Cam to speak to that, too, as the movie (laughs) critic in the room. Like, can you try to get across to people who haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, who've been putting it off as we did for so long, what that weird quality of wonkiness is? Yeah. Well, I should first say that I haven't seen this since it came out because, um, well, I just I never felt the need to see it again. Um, But it's very it's funny how much listening to that clip, it's like it's very vivid in my mind. I can see them in that parking lot. I can see the teeth um, and the hair. (laughs) Um, you know, I think honestly, when I walked into that movie and I, and I was glad that I saw when it got released that a couple of people were saying this on Twitter, I think really this is just a movie about who wrote what song. Well, the other members of Queen, the surviving members are are executive producers on the movie. So we should keep that in mind. Which I never like, (laughs) which I never like, but has never really damned a movie the way that it has this one. But really, I really just thought that like, okay, so this is who wrote We Will Rock You. And this is where you went. You went to like a farmhouse to write Bohemian Rhapsody. And it pretty much turned out perfectly um, is, is sort of the mythology of the movie. That's like in terms of nuts and bolts, that's really what the movie gives me. And then, and then there is this sort of like, how do we, how do we fit the story of the AIDS stuff and the queer stuff into the story, but we do it in a way that doesn't alienate, I think, viewers who, I mean, it doesn't alienate so many viewers. This would be, I think, the most, right? It has to be the highest grossing queer movie ever, if it's a queer movie, or yeah. a, a highest grossing movie about a queer person that should have been a queer movie. Um and I think the way you do that is by sort of rounding off the edges and, and making it seem like, well, if he had HIV or, or you know AIDS, then, you know, he can't have had really like a, a rem- romantic attachment to all of the people that he was with. He was sort of kind of a whore. And he like had sex in 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 parking lots and, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's just like it's that kind of it's that kind of uh, mythology. I don't know. I just have a lot. I have a lot of 
conflicting um, thoughts about this, but they're all in line of this movie's not good. It's not good. <laughs> right. It's like not a good movie, right? Like like all that other stuff aside, it's just like not a it's good movie. It's just not. Yep. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. Before not. we get to it, because that's extremely complex and then it starts to relate into the Brian Singer stuff as well. So before we get into, you know, his descent into the eerie red yeah. lit dens of gayness that he goes into in some montages in the movie. I mean, we should just try to express how much of the action of this movie, which takes place over a good, I don't know, almost 20 years probably, right. is is just compressed into these montages and you know you right. sort of right. learn that they go from being basically a garage band in England to being you know playing gigantic stadiums in I don't know the course of a couple minutes super just, quickly you, you yeah. have to have seen so many rock biopics to even understand the story of this movie right right and to not ask questions you just sort of fall into that well and also to to bring it in at over 2 hours long and yet still use like preposterously concise methods of storytelling kind of mount rushmore you know moments of the band i mean let me just quickly say what i liked about it by way of speculating as to why it made 700 it made 700 million dollars because it's the story i think um cam is right it's like the story behind each one of these songs and the the truth is they came out of different members of the band at different moments and each song becomes iconic in its own way like you know it's just like a vh1 it's got a kind of vh1 you know, pleasure to it. I mean, I, there's also something about, you know, rock and roll is now so dead, we can afford to be completely sentimental and poignant about it within reason. And there's just something about a band, right? I mean, it's now a total cultural anachronism. I mean, rock bands just are not at the center of, of popular music anymore. And we're looking back to, you know, basically a group of young callow egomaniacs each with a private agenda pulling the common thing in a different direction and oddly enough in doing that making the tense center that holds for a little while before blowing apart out of which comes really unique you know music and the very best part of the movie i thought was the i mean it's all preposterous but the preposterous set pieces with uh, mike myers as a you know kind of doofus record executive who fancies himself a kind of uh, rock and roll type but is actually turned into a corporate suit who expresses huge amounts of skepticism at Bohemian Rhapsody which if you didn't know the if you didn't know the success the song had achieved and didn't know the song going in you would think was the most preposterous thing ever I mean it's as he puts it a six minute quasi operatic dirge filled with nonsense words and yet the song kind of works and it's like that part of the movie I like that said, something galvanic happened, and I can't believe it's just the pent-up demand for a Queen biopic that brought this to $700 million and a Best best Oscar nomination. I mean, to me, that's just puzzling beyond belief. Well, I've been, so I've been sleuthing. I've been on the case. I've been really just mentally, though, just like grumbling about it to myself. But in my grumbling over the last number of months, a few things stand out to me, and one is that within the movie, you do have this critique of critics and about how wrong they were about Queen's music. There is this sense of, and also like the Mike Myers character, right? Like not wanting to give them this chance. There's this sense of defying, um, you know, defying corporate logic, defying criticism, sort of making your pop Frankenstein and making it work and pushing it out into the world and people finding it and loving it that I think is totally related to this movie as a movie um, and gives people and sort of arms the movie against criticism. Like, we just don't get it. Critics just don't get it. We're nitpicking. We're asking for it to be something that it, it isn't. Um, people can kind of 
people can kind of map the criticism of the movie onto the criticism of the band and sort of dismiss it. Um, and then there's also just the fact that, I mean, because I've been thinking about this too. Like, did did we all want a Queen movie this badly? Um, I think we wanted... I think we wanted a movie like this, this badly, a movie like this entertaining um, that with music that we all knew, like, like this is the closest to a musical that I think we're all going to agree is worth seeing, um, worth seeing in, in like quotation marks maybe, but you know, like this is, this seems like an easy sell for people. So like making a lot of money while mysterious is not totally, totally wild to me, but I do not know what what people in the industry are seeing. I mean, I think what they're seeing is a movie that happened to <clears throat> come out anyway and be made anyway, despite a lot of problems. I think there's like a hero narrative being attached to the people who completed this movie. There are pieces being written about, you know, the editor sort of salvaging it, Rami Malek sort of getting rid of Brian Singer because he was being a mess on set and making the movie anyway. Like we can assign these like these these narratives of, but they persevered and made the movie to the movie, in which case it's not really important that the movie is not perfect because it was made. Um, um, well, and that's, it's still that, entertaining. That's, that theory really dovetails with the fact, well, if you think, for example, of that, that scene, a scene where they're having lunch on a rooftop and they meet their new manager that went viral on Twitter because of yes. its, its horrific <laughs> editing, and you almost get a sense that there wasn't enough coverage shot in that scene for there to mm-hmm. be a coherent yeah. conversation among five right. men sitting at a table. So right. like somebody will be saying a line and you're not looking at that person. You're looking at like the waiter bringing a cup of coffee. And there really is the sense that like they're scrambling to stitch together a coherent yeah. scene. And someone and someone can say, well, look at those scenes where you can tell they didn't have much to work with, but they still made this whole movie and the live, you know, the live aid set still worked. And, you know, Rami's performance still came through. Like, I really think that people are giving the movie a lot of benefit of the doubt. But in a um, year when there are so many powerful movies that actually tell coherent <laughs> stories and have continuity. I, I, I don't I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't. This, this is just what I'm getting from, you know, Oscar voters are doing those sort of secret ballots or whatever in the public. And I'm looking at that and I'm looking at some of the press and the trades and I'm just thinking, OK, I can see I can see what people are being fed about this movie. Um, and I can see why they're thinking of it in those terms, but I cannot see looking back at any part of the movie and thinking, yeah, I would vote for this movie. You know, even, even the scene that you're talking about was just like, what is going mm. on? Yeah. This yeah, is so poorly put together. Well, and even the fact, I mean, this isn't this isn't Rami Malek's fault. Like, he doesn't have to be a singer, but he doesn't do his own singing. You know, this right. isn't like the, the Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga thing where like a non-singer kind of learns to sing for a musical. You really feel bad for them now. Yeah. <laughs> they put so much effort into this movie where they actually actually sang. Oh, full on. If, if Rami <laughs> Malek wins Best Actor for this, I don't even want to look at the segment of the screen where Bradley Cooper's yeah. face is being pictured because yeah. it's just it's just a blow. It's just such a All blow. Right. <laughs> By way of, of heaping something other than scorn on the movie, which I think it completely deserves, there was a scene that I really liked, which is the one where it turns out he's meeting his future lover, Jim Hutton, um, and um, he kind of... the the He's... Freddie Mercury has thrown this super over-the-top, you know, Saturnalia party, and he meets uh, a guy who's just working a job. He's just a guy in a waiter's uniform cleaning up. He cops a feel, and the guy basically says, you do that again, I'll beat the living crap out of you. And it turns out that person is his, his future lover. And that scene where they sit and they talk, carried probably more by the performances, the acting, than the words on the page, was not a certainly an overwritten scene but you know it seemed to me 
Dana, that was a lovely and true moment into something like the heart of Freddie Mercury. I mean, he's otherwise in this movie portrayed as an otherworldly angel figure, a pan figure, like not quite fully human or not fully there, not fully present until he's on stage entertaining tens of thousands of people or exhilarating them really. But in that moment, I felt that there was there was a, a humanity and the humanity of the movie linked up with the fact of Freddie Mercury uh, owning up to his own loneliness and his own queerness. What did you what did you make of that aspect of the movie? I mean, that individual scene, yes, but yeah, but the overall arc of his and Jim Hutton's romance, what to me was just as weird and just as poorly handled and just as perverse as everything else having to do with his internal, you know, either his sex life or just his love life during the movie. I mean, he has a straight relationship that lasts a very long time. He's sort of semi-engaged to this young woman named Mary Austin, who is a complete cipher in the movie. (laughs) My sister-in-law and I watched the movie together, and she kept saying the whole time, like, what's her name again? Does she have any characteristics? (laughs) She's just just a blonde woman who smiles in the wings at concerts. That's all she is. does not have gaydar at all. (laughs) And yet, and yet, the scene when he finally painfully confesses to her that he thinks he's bi... There's a what I found very strange moment where she says, "No, Freddie, you're gay," and she just <laughs> she just corrects him, and he doesn't correct her back. I don't know. I just I felt personally that if if I were a queer person watching this movie, I would be furious about it. I would be furious about that, you know, about the sort of like straight washing of that moment, and then this idea that being bi is some non possibility, or even just not being sure what you are, but standing up for what you believe you are is not a possibility, right? He doesn't right. contest that categorization. What about all those other relationships? I mean, every gay relationship that he has, or gay connection that he makes, that isn't this relationship that comes very late in the movie and is very tied to the sort of respectability politics of you know now he has a nice boyfriend who can right. meet his. Family, every one of those is in almost an '80s like cruising Al Pacino way yeah. is is <laughs> is shown as sort of vaguely evil, you know. Yeah. And so, in order to know that he is turning from you know trying to be straight and trying to be with Mary to experimenting with men, we have to have these. I think one of them is scored to another one bites the dust, right? We have to have these montages where he descends into dens of iniquity, where things happen that we never know about. And even if those were somewhat anonymous connections he was making, they meant something to him. They meant something to his life, yeah. and. Uh, I don't know. I just thought it was all too easy. And this makes me think that I'm not so happy about this being a giant box office hit that, you know, there could be a lot of straight people who don't know a lot about gay culture, don't spend a lot of time thinking Mm -hmm. about such a world who come out of this movie thinking, well, of course he got AIDS. He went down into those dens of iniquity during the montage, you know, and there's just something really distasteful about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what culture is going to do when we all realize that, you know, the AIDS crisis didn't mean that queer people were only having bad sex in the 80s, that they were only having like meaningless sex. Like there is this very, I mean, I have to say a moment in the movie when I laughed was when all of a sudden everyone else in the band had a wife. (laughs) <laughs> and all the wives come at the same time to the same rehearsal and all of a sudden it's like oh I, I get what you're saying so Freddie's not only the single friend he's like the single gay friend um, who's like completely outside of like the nuclear family ideal who's going to then want that kind of connection and he's going to want that connection to surpass these cruisy hookups which is just not which is just not the way a lot of gay men felt in the 80s. I have to say, a lot of them are really happy right. with their cruisy hookups. I mean, I kept thinking of the song Supersonic, which you only hear at the very end. You don't yeah. see him perform it, but it's under the final credits. It's probably my favorite Queen song. I love it. And if you listen to what that song is about and think about where it came in his career, it's obvious that what Supersonic is about is the joy of discovering 
he's gay, right? right. And the, the joy of cruising and the joy of clubbing. It's really a song about one's liberation through the discovery of one's own sexual truth. And that is located nowhere in the movie, the, right. the, 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 the affect that that song conveys. And here I just have to say that the Brian Singer story being in the background, we're not going to get into that now. That is a huge, complicated, yeah. you know, brat's nest of its own that maybe we will talk about another time. But it's impossible not to observe that the complications of that story are some of the precise complications yeah. that are being ironed out of this one, right? Yeah. That's it's weird. Yeah, brilliantly put. Yeah. Okay. The movie's Bo- Bohemian Rhapsody. It made a ton of money. It's competing for the Oscar, and probably you've probably seen it. So interact with us about it on Twitter if you like. All right. Moving on. All right. Before we go any further, Dana, I'm going to guess that we have some business. Thanks, Steve. Yes, first of all, today we wanted to tell you about the Slate Culture Newsletter, which is a great new way to keep up with all of Slate's culture coverage, plus insight on the best of movies, TV, books, music, all the things that we cover on this show, including my movie reviews for the site. It's delivered twice a week to your inbox, and you can visit slate.com slash culture news to sign up. Also in Slate Plus today, you should know that we are talking about Ryan Adams, the musician who last week was credibly and depressingly accused of all kinds of misdeeds with women over the course of his career. Um, I don't think we've ever done Ryan Adams as a topic, but Steve, I know you and I have both been listeners and fans in the past, and we've even talked about covering one of his songs at a live show. And so rather than kind of get into the newsy part of this, which people can go if they want and read about for themselves, we're going to talk personally about what it means when a musician or an artist whose work you care about falls into the Me Too mire. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, a way to support the magazine and support our show and all the other great shows on the Slate Podcast Network. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest. And of course, in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and other Slate shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, back to the show. In the early 1970s in Idaho, one family moves in next door to another. The first family, the one that lived there already, has two daughters. They're the picture, uh, on the surface at least, of American normalcy. Uh, the father of the other family, however, is he's friendly, he's charismatic, he's, uh, we have to believe, sexy, and begins to groom every member of the first family until he has insinuated his way into all of their lives, with his eye, though, especially on their prepubescent daughter, Jan. Thus begins, I have to say, just one of the weirdest, one of the fucking weirdingest tales we've ever encountered in doing this show. Uh, this is Abducted in Plain Sight is a 2017 true crime documentary that has recently gone viral, semi-viral on Netflix. It seems designed for Reddit obsessives to pick over and pick over again. Uh, now it's our turn, but first let's listen to a clip. As our investigation continued, I talked to many people in Pocatello that knew him and found out that Bob Birchtold had an infatuation for young girls. My brother was always a sexual pervert. He always did like little girls. I guess he had a need to fulfill as a pedophile, because he was a pedophile, and I knew that. This was the first pedophile case I'd ever run across. I couldn't comprehend it at first. The FBI taught me stranger danger. We never call them pedophiles. I'm sure it was in the dictionary someplace. But now I'm hearing these things about Bob Birchtoll loving little kids. I mean, all these things are just making my skin crawl. 
Dana, I'm going to preface this discussion by by just confessing up front that we had off mic discussions about how to do this segment because I, do you agree with me? There's just no way to talk about this thing without spoiling it. Yeah, I mean, it would be such a pussyfooting conversation that it would have no interesting content because the wacko twists start coming about five minutes into this documentary. Like, if your skin is crawling at that clip we just heard, I mean, just get ready to spiral down a serious corkscrew of revelations. And so, given that Slate is not doing a spoiler special podcast on this show, I think we should just treat this segment as that and just send people to watch the documentary first if they want to. It's an hour and a half long. It goes by very quickly and it leaves you with lots and lots of questions. I know I, for one, would have been happy to run to a spoiler podcast for help after watching it the first time. And people should note, if you don't want to hear this segment because you haven't seen the show yet and you don't want to hear it spoiled or you just don't want to hear people talking about a show you don't plan to see, we have left a time code in the podcast description that comes up in your your podcast app. So you'll see exactly at what you know, what hour and minute in the show to to skip to to not hear it. Okay, so fair warning having been delivered, I'm going to turn to Cam. Cam, this is really... <laughs> this oh, man. Is fucked. Sorry, I don't know why some... I laughed immediately. <laughs> no, I mean, there's going to be a lot of... The anxious laughter. <laughs> anxious laughter. I mean, oh, man. I mean, don't I think me. you... No, I'm ready. It's totally... It's as weird as anything we've encountered, but I think maybe, maybe you can boil the weirdness down to one word, which is complicity. This ultra-normal family appears to have allowed this man to take control and sexual control over their own daughter what did you make of this movie all right well the first thing i have to say is that i am vocally proudly a member of true crime specials are too long group (laughs) club i don't know what we are but we are you know united front against very long true crime specials so you're not a making a murderer guy i i tried to be i watched all 10 hours i logged that but uh, I did not think that I needed 10 hours for that. Um, and, and I'm just generally, now that you know, true crime is such a, such a, such a thing, which people are right to have feelings about in itself, I certainly do not want to spend 10 hours on something. That said, I think I could have used a little bit more um, to this documentary. I have to be honest, that, that, was my main, that was my main takeaway because Dana, as you mentioned, the, the plot twists, as it were, are so frequent. And I just felt like there were things I wasn't able to latch on to. So, you know, this guy is grooming the entire family. He has sexual contact with both parents and with with Jan. And it was when he has sexual contact with the father that I was like, all right, what, what, where are we? Tell me about these people. Tell me about this community. Tell me about, you know, like the... At, like, their church, for example. Their church. For, like, they're Mormon, right? They're LDS, which they're is... They're LDS. Yeah, right. <clears throat> which, like, is something that's dropped in there, but not really wrestled with. But I wondered, you know, does that affect the ways that the parents are so trusting? Does it affect the fact that the parents believe a lie, like, my therapist told me I had to lay down with your th- daughter? Not because of any sort of religious principle, but just because of a sense of, like, community. Like, a religious community. Right. We like, didn't lock our doors, right, they say, right? Right, right. Like, everyone, like, we trust everyone. You know, I mean, it, it's it's complicated because because I just felt like I needed I needed more. On the one hand, I was watching people confess these very painful memories of being abducted or having their daughter abducted. On the other hand... This is a story that involves a guy pretending to be aliens um, to kind of convince this younger girl to not t- tell anyone, which is so weird. And and like, I, I just. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like, 
Another question that comes up there, and we're talking about the, you know, the fact that Bob Burst told the the abductor had these tapes, cassette tapes that he prepared with right. sort of a distorted voice where he's, you know, makes up this whole story about two aliens, Zeta and Zethra, who need right. the two of them to get together. I would also have wanted to know some of the, the cultural currents of that time that would have made that a believable, scary story, Absolutely. right? Because I know when I was growing up, which was around this time, I'm I'm only a few years younger than Jan Broberg, and I know that aliens and, you know, the idea of UFOs speaking to you was very much in the air in a more naive way than it would be now. You know, so I also would have liked to maybe hear about some of that. What would have made that tape right. something credible for, for a young girl at that time? Precisely. Like, just, just what are the things informing the context these people live in such that these things can happen? Because, mm-hmm. because I think without understanding that it's hard to you're just sort of sitting there like you're, you're frankly you're you're having a harder time sympathizing I think what I've noticed among some people sympathizing with the parents because it just seems like bad stupid decisions well here's a question about sympathizing with the parents or not sympathizing with yes. the parents as we find out more and more things that these parents did that were complicit I mean you can blame them to, to some degree for being seduced by this manipulative psychopath right let's say that they're such innocent church going people that they were able to be manipulated by a psychopath they also do things like not report their daughter's second yeah. abduction right. Right. for Crazy. something like was it five days Days, a week, something like that. Um, so the complicity also starts to become susceptibility to manipulation and starts yes. to become something like callousness and also self-protection, right? I mean, part yes. of the reason they didn't report the second disappearance is that they would then have to come clean about the fact that the guy had also messed with them. And seduced them, yeah. I mean, one one thing, well, well, it's hard to know where to plant your first flag when talking about this, but but <laughs> let, me just, let me just take a st- stab here. Um, which is there's an extraordinary moment when uh, Birchtold, the the satanic figure uh, at the center of all this seduction, clearly has burned down the business of the father whose daughter he's abducted, um, and there's this astonishing moment that the daughters speak to of they're all five of them standing there with the father in the center, his arm around his wife and his three daughters, as they watch the bur- business burn down to the ground. And it is reported by one of the daughters that the father says, let it burn, let it burn to the ground. I don't care. I have everything I care about right here. And as the daughter says it, uh, she's you know being interviewed now as an adult. A, you believe that she believes it. And B, uh, you see in her demeanor that she believes that she was a loved and protected child. I mean, the very first and most screaming paradox at the heart of the movie is the apparent relative mental health of the people describing these events, which includes Bob Broberg, his wife, and and two of the three daughters are interviewed extensively. I'm not saying that these people aren't wounded. I'm not saying that the camera can apprehend the extent to which they've been traumatized or broken. They seem as though they are product these kids to me as adults seem to me especially the younger uh, the, the younger daughter they seem to me to be products of a of a of a healthy and loving family um and that's impossible to square with the behavior of the parents then the question arises of how many I, 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 they're having deeply emotional moments of recall on camera that I also believe in completely. So I don't feel as though I've, in the entirety of the documentary, I don't feel as though I'm witnessing faked emotion on the part of any of the people being interviewed. And they have serious moments of near breakdown, emotional breakdown, describing how excruciating painful it was to go through this. So 
I, the parents are not sociopaths, right? They didn't barter the sexuality. It doesn't appear that they bartered the sexuality of their daughter completely callously. Um, so, there, but it does feel as though there are massive sins of omission. That that something really is going undescribed um, or evaded still. And I don't know. I mean, I I I hope this speaks to the homophobia of the culture and not mine. But it seems to me that the to my mind, somewhat apparent homosexuality of the father, which he never came to grips with, even though he has something of a sexual relationship with um, the satanic figure, combined with the re- religiosity and apparent normalcy of the family is the source of the shame that had to be somehow evaded. It's Dana, at one point, completely explicitly the fulcrum by which Birch told the pedophile um, uh, essentially, essentially extorts them into not prosecuting him after he's abducted their daughter the first time. But I, you know, setting aside maybe even the specifics of it, isn't there just some massive amount of information that seems to be withheld in the telling of the story? I don't think it's just the dad either. It's also the mother's long-term, you know, confessed long-term affair with Birchfield after, right? Am I wrong about this, this timeline, that that affair happened after he had abducted her daughter once or it happened before? She certainly had the long affair she had after the initial abduction. Wow, yeah, I that's think so. that's really insane. Okay, so but so this documentary was based on a book that Marianne Broberg, the mother, wrote with the help of her daughter, and they self-published it, I believe, and it apparently contains no mention of either of the parents' involvements with Birchtold. So it, you know, it's meant to be, I think, this kind of warning about how to protect your children, mm. and there's all this scary stuff out there, and to write a book like that. And not come clean with with that fact just seems like it does a huge, huge disservice to if you're actually trying to keep people from being, you know, manipulated by psychopaths who are worming their way into your family to groom your daughter, then you've got to come clean about that stuff. Yeah. And it's it's to me, it's very hard to come out of this documentary. Yes, you come out of it feeling terrible for everyone involved. But I think it's really hard not to come out, too, with a, a huge amount of uh, of anger towards the yeah. parents for what they allowed to happen and their unwillingness to see their own complicity in it. Absolutely. And I also, you know, another character that we haven't mentioned yet, but that is fascinating in these terms, uh, is is his brother, B's brother, mm-hmm. um, who is very aware, I think we heard this in the clip, he's very aware that his brother has attraction to underage women, but he is so matter-of-fact about it and strange about it, and in the way that he recounts their childhood, I was kind of waiting for him to be like, and this was terrible, and and we said something, or like I noticed this about him, and this was awful. Um, but I wasn't getting that from him. I was getting a, a broader sense of like, in terms of complicity, just a much broader sense of where this guy is coming from. That like it's possible that he was abused when he was younger, you know, the kind of familiar story. But I wasn't getting a sense that any of this behavior was condemned before he got to this family. Right. And there's a flashback that lasts maybe 15 seconds about Bob Birchtold's childhood and what that was like. And it sounds absolutely horrific. Like he was locked in a barn separate totally. from his, his stepfather's family. And he was only allowed into the house if he would take care of the younger sister, which is how he got this fixation on caring for little girls, etc. Where was his brother and all that? He's not mentioned in the flashback. There's not even, and I was really waiting for this, just sort of like a circle around which kid is which and the totally. old photos they show. Totally. You know, So there's a real blur as to what his background mm-hmm. was, which again would give you some kind of sense of, of what's the cultural matrix that all this emerged from. Absolutely. And 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 to your point there, the FBI agent that we hear from 
who says like we weren't calling them pedophiles in that moment we were calling them you know we were stranger danger etc there's also just the sense of like if that lines up just like the authorities also not knowing how to handle this or not knowing what to do even though i mean to the earlier point about this sort of being a mormon community it is clear that other people in the town know to keep their kids away from this guy mm-hmm. yeah so, so i mean so this is and this is something that i'm just really interested in when it comes to uh you know, this culture of abuse, just sort of how communities of people talk about, don't talk about, deal with or don't deal with known abusers in their communities. There's a whole story here that's not being told about just how this is being navigated. We're only seeing it from the perspective of these two very flawed parents, but it's bigger than them. Yeah. You sense that the entire time that it's bigger than just them. Even Joe Welsh, the FBI agent who we heard in the clip. Right. I mean, I would love a little bit of insight into what the FBI was like at that time. What was their what was their investigation unit for child molestation crimes? Right. Why were they going around talking about, quote, stranger danger as if it was a slideshow for 14 year olds instead of, you know, like grown men who are trying to solve crimes? I mean, since we're talking about Netflix, I kept thinking of the show Mindhunter and how that show is about developing, like developing a language to talk about serial killers i was like suddenly becoming curious just like okay how does the fbi what does the fbi do what is the fbi gonna like what are they putting their finger on when they see this and they start getting mad at the parents and they start they start thinking about complicity and etc like just how are they supposed to not how are they supposed to because they're the fbi but but how are they keeping track of these things how are they knowing how to intervene or not it just seems like nobody knows what they're doing frankly what else was going on psychologically and physically in that family with this guy. Bizarrely, I think that that's why, or counterintuitively, that's why people are so attracted to this. I mean, you watch it and you try to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, Cam, I'm kind of with you. I think that not only true crime stories, but almost everything on television is too long. Agreed. <laughs> and a yeah. part of me, just I just want everything to be just like a little lo- compact lozenge that I can just swallow in the course of yes. you know one afternoon. <laughs> Pill yes. form. Like yes. lozenge TV. That'd be and, great. Uh, and this certainly, this documentary certainly presents a lot of incredible storytelling and unbelievable twists within the course of 90 minutes. But it is unsatisfying in the sense that, you know, there there are just too many nuances left left unexplored. And the last one I would say I would want is to know, because it's the most inspiring thing in the documentary, I think, how Jan Bro- Broberg turned out so OK. Totally. You yeah. know, I mean, she does totally. not she has does not seem to have lived a horrible life of drug abuse and, and bleakness. She is a is an actress who's done some successful work on TV. I gather she goes around speaking about sexual assault and she seems like a pretty together person. I would love to know, you know, what kind of therapy she had undergone since then, how her school years went. Did she marry? Did she have children? Maybe she didn't want to reveal those things. And I can understand that. But that is another chapter of the story. Yes. that I think to really come out of it saying, yep. you know, OK, I understand how people survive something like this. I would like to know a little more about her. Totally. I, and, and my theory is they are also incredibly loving, successful parents alongside all of this fucked upness, which just shows you, man, it just... I I don't even know what it shows you. It just shows you how sheer human variety produces every permutation, right? Um, Anyway, we've said a lot about this. It's called Abducted in Plain Sight. It's on Netflix. You've probably seen it. If you haven't, uh, um, you know, check it out and and just tell us what you thought of it. I mean, walk us through it if you have any theories. We'd love to hear them. Okay, moving on. All right, well, NASA sent... uh, 
golf cart out into space. I guess it was 14 years ago. It roved around Mars and then it died. It lasted much longer than people thought it was going to because the winds on Mars apparently cleaned off its solar panels of the dust they knew was going to accrete on it. But finally, it was overpowered by a severe dust storm. It sent out a last message that said, my battery is low and it's getting dark, which Dana coincidentally is you know, the theme of my life, the slogan of my entire life. I mean, there's something, there's like a special poignancy to the death of this Mars rover opportunity or Oppy. There's just been an orgy of anthropomorphism and we would like to try to explore why. Dana. Stephen, I have only one reply and that is, Daisy, Daisy, <laughs> give me your answer to. It's like we've been waiting all the years since 1969 or whenever it was that 2001 came out for some actual space creature to, to speak to us in such poignant terms. Goodbye, Oppie. Okay, well, so that's you've set it up beautifully now. Explain explain why, uh, Culture Critique, why, why is everyone... Um, so moved by the demise of this. I too would love to know. <laughs> I mean, yes. I'm sort of hoping, waiting, that, I'm hoping that one of us felt that poignancy up until the moment that you just heard me sing those strains because I wasn't really following the Oppie tragedy until she and everyone is, is characterizing the, the rover as a female um, uttered her last words from the surface of Mars and suddenly, you know, all these space nerds came out of the blue and were, were grieving the death of this rover that they had apparently been accompanying all this time. Yeah. And we sort of decided to talk about this, I mean, not because so much that we're invested in in the demise of Oppie, but to talk in a larger way about space and what space means to people. And uh, when this came up in our, our planning call, the possibility of doing Oppie, I mentioned that um, that Emily Bazelon of the Slate Political Gab Fest has this funny ongoing trope. I don't know if she still feels this way, but I've heard her say in the past whenever something about space comes up, oh, I hate space. I'm sick of space. Space <laughs> is a waste of time. Why are we spending our resources exploring this you know, vast void when there are people here on Earth who still need help. And while I understand that point of view, I would not at all say that I hate space and space exploration, but I think it is interesting to think about people's connections and co- our culture's connection to, you know, this vast unknowable void that we're we're all floating in and why it is that we do things like personify little cute Wally rovers to run around right. and, and pick up rocks and then mourn them when they <laughs> die. That's really all Oppie was doing just picking up rocks. I mean, I I'm not questioning. I'm 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 confirming that I mean, Oppie was doing a lot. I have to say that, you know, that that little creature overperformed like crazy. I think that they they thought that she was going to last for 90 sols, as they say, which I guess means Mars days. But at any rate, the creature lasted far, far, far longer, like dozens of times longer than they expected her to. And the entire time was, you know, photographing, measuring, sending back information. I think it was through this rover and another rover, her twin spirit that's still on Mars, but that is dead, died quite a long time ago, that we learned all these important things like the fact that Mars had liquid water, you know, something like four billion years ago, had a lot of liquid water and therefore could possibly have supported life. And sure, we've learned a lot about that that planet from the the cruising of the of the rover. Yeah, mm. that's really great. This is so weird to me because it's like being on Twitter or Facebook and everyone's cousin has died, but everyone had the same cousin. And so this person died and I don't know anything about this person, but everyone's talking about them. This is how but it's like a distant cousin that no one's seen in a while. So it's like so everyone's like everyone's, you know, MMORM is just sort of weird and vague to me. Like and this is not a criticism. It's more like 14 years is a really long time. I do not know where I was. I mean, in life, I guess I was in college when when Abby went into space. But it's an interesting phenomenon because I just I don't I didn't know about Abby. 
mm-hmm. at all. Um, so I'm sort of on the side of like, I love space. I don't know that I've really been keeping up with Mars, though, I have to say. I like like the philosophy of space, the void, Sandra Bullock getting sent out into oblivion and having you like to find space her way movies, back. right? I love space movies, even bad Mars movies. But I, you know, it's funny in, in terms of like expo- actual exploration of Mars, I just sort of had tuned this out or not tuned it out, but it just really wasn't a part of my life. So this has mm. just been an interesting thing. I have friends that I didn't even know were into science um, or Mars or solar, anything um, who are like really upset. Um, and I don't know, I'm sure there's like some grand philosophy you can attach to this of like, mm. Okay, well, that's you've given me my cue and <laughs> grand philosophy, Steve to the rescue. It's called opportunity. So, as the person filling in for Julia, it's your job. You know, I'll tell the grand theory, and then it's your job to shoot it down. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I came up with three potted theories for why the poignant anthropomorphizing of this device out in space. The first is that it, we're hungry for some sense of like uh, underpromising and overperforming. You know, the old Kennedy era optimism, you know, the moonshot, large public works that actually work, a Cold War era kind of success. Uh, In the Trump era, it makes sense that we would suddenly want something that fit that bill at least a little bit. Like we as a society, through government funding and a government agency, in the cause of pure science, you know, or or discovery, just a sense of wonder and discovery might actually be able to, to, to do something and accomplish something beyond the clutches of venality and then the second reason is that we're going to need a new planet soon so we better hope you know there's this sense of you know there's always been this kind of blank spot on the map longing that's been fulfilled by earth until we mapped all of it which was quite a while ago but now we seem to be using up the planet um and there's a sense and i don't mean to be glib about this but a real sense that i mean i'm not saying that people legitimately think this is a first step to finding a replacement planet but there is some sense in which casting our imagination beyond the boundaries of this earth for better and for worse is a form of escapism that makes sense in the in the face of uh, global warming um and then finally i think we're at that we're at an inflection point with robots and there's a lot of talk about robots taking jobs and a lot of talk about AI and the force of algorithms to predict what we're going to do and survey us, you know, even when we don't think we're being surveyed. And we're trying to understand what the nature of our robot overlords is going to be. And to have one that we think is sweet, kind, efficient, um, or at least somewhat benign, somewhat harmless, uh, it understands that we might have the sudden outpouring that maybe our robot overlords will be our friends and helpmates, <laughs> um, you know, and yeah. and and not in some way um, here to uh, destroy us. So those are my potted theories. Cam, it's now your job in the Julia Turner role to tell me how each <laughs> one of them is incredibly ludicrous and um, what would the word be? Shallow and ludicrous? What what is you what does you Julia usually convey by tone of voice, Dana? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Tough position. I will I will not discount either things that you, either thing that you've said. I will just say First of all, robots are already doing like backflips or whatever. So in terms of like us, it's over. <laughs> like they're gonna, they're gonna, it's fine. They're gonna take over. It's fine. Um, I, I will be long dead by the time robots are running the world. I hope. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think they're gonna care about how much we like Oppie. I really don't. <laughs> I really, I don't think there's anything that's gonna save us. And I, and I do actually totally hear your point about just we're sort of in a moment like we're due for this kind of outpouring. I think we're due for 
I don't know, like political aspiration or something. I just, it feels like this is part of a catharsis that is unrelated to, but related to this robot. I think there's just something really beautiful for people about the fact that at this point, Oppie was the only one of us who was on Mars and that's over now. Um, and there, there's, you know, it was like a last frontier thing or whatever. I'll just say that like, I like Wally a lot, but if Wally were to die, I don't think I would care. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be, I, you know, I don't, you know, like I, I, I don't know. It's, it's strange to me. I think we've like assigned so many personalities to this thing and I sort of get how beautiful it is, but you know, I don't know. Elon Musk is going to be on Mars in like two years <laughs> or 20 years, whatever, you know, like it, it's, it's fine. This is like the end of an era. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think that I can I can even feel a little bit of, a, of, of Emily Bazelon bitterness about this if I start to dig into it. When I think, yeah. for example, about Steve's second theory about terraforming some new planet, I mean, not that he went as far as imagining terraforming, but that's what science fiction does, right? It imagines finding some other rock in space that we can move our Earth to. And that just makes me so angry that I start mm-hmm. to think, not only do I not care if Wally dies, I don't care if we all die. <laughs> you know, yeah. like nice. we screwed this planet up, right? Whoever we is out there, whatever whatever benevolent universe inventor there is, handed us this beautiful green and blue orb bursting with life on which we could all live, you know, virtuously and joyously together. And we screwed it up. Why should we spend all of our resources trying to, you know, find some way that a few mm-hmm. very rich people possibly yeah, could find right. a way to live some horrible existence eked out on some planet where we're, you know, trying to grow potatoes with Matt Damon. I think we should just go down with the ship pretty much, you know, and yeah. let the universe carry on without us. I think we're going to no matter what. I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I've accepted it. <laughs> you know, like, I've, I, but I, I, you know, I really have because, yeah, totally. It's fucking funny. Yeah. It's only going to be rich, really, really rich people who get to go to these other planets unless there's some kind of like scholarship right. program. It's like one, two words, Elon Musk, right? Yeah. I mean, so, even just thinking of what he's doing makes me so enraged. We're writers, so we're definitely going to stay here. <laughs> we're not <laughs> getting invited. We're not engineers. We're not doctors. We could teach, but to the extent that that's going to be important to people, I don't know. Um, we don't know anything about Mars, so we're not science teachers. Like, I'm not going to go so far as to say let's scrap all the space programs throughout the world totally. and funnel all that money back into the Earth. But honestly, does it matter more that Mars had water four billion years ago or that kids in Flint, Michigan don't have water now? Totally. You know, Ooh. which of those two things is more important? She's and it running. just seems to me that whether or not... <laughs> But it just seems to me that whether or not you directly take that NASA money and funnel it back into social programs or not, it's harder to feel poignant about the death of the Opportunity rover or about the fact that, you know, that Carl Sagan, whatever it is, thing is still going out into space with the gold record with Bach on it. Right. right I mean, I forget right, what right. that thing is called. But there is something beautiful yeah. about humanity sending out those messages to the universe. But it would be a hell of a lot more beautiful if we were sending some decent messages to ourselves. I agree. Mm. Wow. You have my vote. Dana has a fucking stump speech <laughs> in her I'm, breast I'm pocket. I got I a love flight it. to Iowa. I got to run. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you, that was amazing. Oh, my Lord. All right. Well, uh, tell us what you think about Dana's 2020 candidacy. <laughs> Sh- should she take the Veep spot if, for whatever reason, she doesn't prevail in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire? All right. Uh, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
I am going to endorse a YouTube personality, um, an actress who gives tutorials on YouTube about, she's a dialogue coach and actress. Her name is Amy Walker. I discovered her, I should say, through my daughter, who is an aspiring actor and is always trying to master new accents and ways of speaking. Amy Walker is just really, really seductive to watch doing different accents. She's an American woman, but she can perfectly reproduce any accent right down to, you know, regional accents throughout different parts of England and, you know, different parts of the South. And she sort of talks through how it is that she's holding her mouth and using her palate. And in individual videos, you can see her coaching you on how to do these accents, which is really fascinating. Um, But the one I recommend that you start with, it will probably get you on an Amy Walker kick. It definitely got me on one. It's called 21 Accents, in which she just says, my name is Amy Walker and I'm a dialogue coach or something like that in in 21 different voices. And uh, she's really, really fascinating to watch and makes you want to go down a deep rabbit hole of voice reproduction. I've always wished I could be a mimic. I very much admire vocal mimicry as a skill. And I'm a terrible, terrible vocal mimic, but I feel like I'm going to pat myself on the back and say I'm a good judge of vocal mimicry. Don't you feel <laughs> when you watch a movie, Cam, like you, you're the person, the one person who can know whether that person really sounds like they're from that region or not? Absolutely. So I think you would really dig these Amy Walker videos. They're, they're super fun to watch. And we'll put a link to her YouTube channel on the show page, Amy Walker. Love it. Cam, what do you have? Um, I have an event or rather a thing that, that happened over the weekend that I just think is worth reiterating. Um, and that is Don Cheadle's um, Protect Trans Kids shirt on SNL mm-hmm. this weekend. Um, was with, he the guest host? He was the guest host. And uh, he wore the shirt right before introducing the musical guest. And I just, I was pretty taken aback by it um, because I think of, of the queer community, uh, trans people and trans youth are probably sort of the least politically visible even though that's changing because of things like the internet and that's changing because of things like increased awareness and the problem conversation is much better than it used to be. But I think this is a, an area in particular that really could use more allies. And then there was something really powerful about that language being on the screen, really huge. Um, that language and that place, not expecting it. It was very powerful to me. It's a very powerful phrase, protect trans kids. It sort of sums everything up for me. Um, and I, I was very moved by it uh, and just sort of want to endorse that form of advocacy. Obviously, it's not, you know, do other things. But even that language, I mean, there just aren't many people saying, like, protect LGBT teens even, but like trans kids in particular, trans people of color, um, just very, very, very important communities of people who don't sort of tend to have these sort of celebrity allies, except for when they become the celebrities, um, which is very important as well. Um, but yeah, it was very, very powerful to me. Noting that he did not need to play a trans person <laughs> to get that message across, which mm-hmm. is another thing that I would like to um, yeah more of our straight allies to not do if possible uh you don't have to play a trans character in a movie to sort of empower trans people it's as simple as or not as simple but is as a you know can be something like this i think is really powerful Uh, lovely um all right well i to extract something possibly of uh redemptive value out of the truly distressing and really finally repulsive ryan adams story uh, which we'll be talking about in our plus segment. I'd like to re-endorse Phoebe Bridgers, who was a, a lover and a object of, I think, manipulation and abuse of Ryan Adams as well. I mean, the line there was blurred and re-blurred. And, um, but she wrote about her relationship with Ryan Adams in the song Motion Sickness, which is an incredible pop song. I mean, it's melodic. It's 
deeply melancholic. It's it's so conflicted. I mean, that's what's so fucking hard is that the people who some of the people who abuse you also fucking love you and you love them. I mean, it's just the the the, the depth and the pain of it when someone who you trusted and loved does what Ryan Adams allegedly apparently did to Phoebe Bridgers is all in that song. And I've endorsed it before, so go, go someplace somewhat new. She's also come out with an album with Connor Oberst, uh, known for the band Bright Eyes, but tons of collaborations and solo work since then. They formed a, a Knots band, a kind of ad hoc band called Better Oblivion Community Center together. I really dig it. I'm getting into it. Um, but uh, essentially everything Phoebe Bridgers at this point early on in her career has touched. I mean, she's all of 24, 25 years old, um, has been extraordinary. Um, so check it out. Um, but then very quickly, I finally have gotten around to reading a book that I've already endorsed. I endorsed it saying, I know it's going to be great because of the people who recommended it to me. And I'm now two thirds of the way through it. It's, um, Shirley Jackson's, we have always lived in the castle. It is such a fucking masterpiece. I mean, a tone perfect, you know, exquisitely executed small novel. I mean, talk about the elegance of concision, um, total control of every aspect of fiction writing. Um, it's just, it's just, a, it's a, it's a master class, a mistress class in, in, in great, in great um, fiction writing. Um, so check it out. Uh, Cam, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, total delight. Uh, Dana, as always, thanks. It was, it was great. It was very fun. Thanks. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. We dig interacting with you on that. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is uh, Alex Barish. For Kay Austin Collins and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Here's a short preview of our Slate Plus segment for today. If you want to hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus. I just, I can't really accept a world where you just have to go through your own memory banks and, you know, stain your own past well, because no of stuff that's happening now. No, is anyone asking you to eternal sunshine your Brian Adams, the Brian, I'm sorry, Brian Adams associated <laughs> memories out of your brain? But, you're, but you and I would never stand in front of a live audience and sing a Ryan Adams song. That would be showing... A kind of that would be a betrayal. Yeah, that would, that would be different. And 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 in a way, I mean, putting on his albums will also have a different feeling. But you also have to ask how far back into the past does that go, right? Because as many people have observed since this Ryan Adams story broke, the music industry has not really been me too'd yet. And the idea mm-hmm. of that starting to happen, you know, the idea of like what I don't know, Jagger and Richards were up to in the '60s or something. We're not going to have any music left to listen to.